Welcome to the Raise Private Money Legally Podcast with your host, Corporate Securities Attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. Kim is a nationally recognized attorney, speaker, and the author of two number one Amazon best-selling books, the latest of which is How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally. Kim and her firm, Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, have been responsible for over $2.75 billion in securities offerings. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce you to topics and services you need as your real estate syndication business grows. Whether you're a new syndicator or a seasoned fund manager, this podcast is for you. Information discussed during this free podcast is of a general, educational nature and should not be construed as legal or tax advice. This is the uh, monthly free teleseminar for syndication attorneys. PLLC. We're a Florida-based law firm, and uh, we practice real estate securities law. So today, we are interviewing Jeff Green of Jeffware, which is a cybersecurity company. And the reason that we decided to do this call was because we actually had uh, one of our clients who was touched by this, and uh, it it could have a severe impact, uh, long-ranging, on the future of syndication in general. Um, You know, when people are collecting money and you're communicating over the internet, whether you're posting documents online or you're emailing them, uh, you're creating these opportunities for risk where someone could potentially intercept what you're sending and uh, maybe figure out a way to uh, reroute funds and things like that. So we want to make sure that you know what you're doing uh, both in your personal life, but as well as in your with your syndication funds and um, the, the investor funds that you will be ultimately collecting. So, Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Hey, thanks for agreeing to do this call. No uh, problem. Could you could you tell us a little bit about your company and your background? Sure. So I've been uh, I've been in the security aspect as well as um, system uh, integrations and some other things in around the IT world. My first company was um, uh, Greenware, and Greenware was started in 1981. So we've been around for a while, and uh, we started our our uh, venture off into the IT world with the the advent of of the PC. So so we've been around for a long time, and I've spent uh, about 15 years as an ethical hacker. Um, and what that means is that um, we were paid to go in and actually hack people's systems and networks and then provide them with feedback on how that could be uh, corrected. And so, um, so we have an extensive background in, in doing that. And then when you get into that area of, of work, uh, you often get called by various groups to um, do things like find people on the internet um, in terms of uh, tracking them and um, uh, sourcing down uh, what kind of activities come from where and those kinds of things. So that led to to that uh, end of the business in terms of uh, uh, tracking folks through the internet, which is fairly easy to do. So um, <clears throat> So that's that's kind of where we come from and, and what what we've been doing and and then uh, we we found that there's a big gap in basic knowledge of people in the internet, particularly with parents and their children. So we have uh, a lot of free programs around um, uh, where we go and speak to to large groups of youth and their parents and try to uh, educate them around uh, internet safety and security because that's a big 
a big problem uh, today. So, so those oh, are kind yeah. of some of the. Chris, this is going to date me, but uh, back in the uh, the 90s, uh, when I my stepdaughter was living in our house, I, w- I refused to have internet. <laughs> I do that in this day and age, but like if you want to use the email, you have to go down to the library, and I'll take you. <laughs> you, know, you get well, an hour and a half uh, to, to do Facebook. <laughs> I would say that that's still not a bad idea, but uh, unfortunately, the library's computer is very unprotected, so um, uh, so so may not be the best option today. But uh, but anyway, so that's that's kind of our genesis and what we do and and um, where we came from. Okay, well, that's that's a pretty uh, broad background, and certainly, I'm sure a lot of our uh, callers today have children at home that they want to protect uh, as well as protecting their own financial security and that of their businesses. Um, But that's always a concern for me when I think about the fact that our clients have to, in some cases, uh, if if you're doing a Reg D Rule 506C offering that can be advertised to investors, they actually have an obligation to verify the financial qualifications of their investors. And Mm -hmm. one of the ways to do that is to actually gather that financial information themselves (laughs) and, you know, and look at it, you know, get their uh, financial statements, get their income statements. And, you know, since I have clients that are raising money from investors all over the country, then it's likely that that's going to come via email. And now all of that information might be exposed, not just during the transmission, but also for the duration of time that 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 syndicator has that information. So, you know, it's always a concern if you're going to be doing that stuff yourself, then how do you safeguard that information, you know, from, mm-hmm. from now and forever? Um, sure. So so let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned to me on the phone when we were discussing this call, uh, vectors. T- tell us about vectors and what, what does that mean? Yeah, so so here's the what people don't commonly understand about um cybersecurity and and protecting themselves is so so the number one problem with uh what we do online is that most um you, you without going into the history of what all these um communication lines in the digital world uh where, where they came from um <clears throat> what what one needs to know is is that almost all of the communication lines that you use online have no, have no feedback loop. And by that, I mean, you really have no way of knowing whether the person you're sending that to actually received it. Okay. So when you send a text, you're hoping that your friend has their phone turned on and that they read your text. Now, some, some of the newer texting facilities have a, uh, you know, a little thing that'll pop up and say that they're, they're uh, typing back to you or, or um, you know they've read your text or whatever, but that that's a that's an approximated feedback loop. That's not a a, a that, that's not a guaranteed loop, right? So um, when you send an email out, you can you can mark on your email that you want to know when they read it. But the bottom line is is that person can turn off read receipt, and you don't get that notification. Um, you, you can well, also, and I think it's also problematic to do that. I mean, I, I know early on I used to do that, but now, I, you know, I get 80 emails in my inbox a day that I can barely get yep. through, and, you know, to add another 80 on top of that would just drive me insane. That's right. So, 
so that that's the number one problem is is there's no feedback loop in the in any of the communication chains that you typically use on the internet unless it is a, a, a face-to-face type of conversation where you have webcams involved and you can actually see the person talking to you um, so that's that's your first problem and so the notion of vectors is a is a is what we call it when there are multiple ways in which you can be attacked so you can you can be attacked for instance one way is is a man in the middle attack where i would intercept your traffic and um and i and i would i would begin to look like the person that you're purporting to talk to i'll give you an example one of the things we do when we do these youth seminars is we uh, i'll go to the person in charge either a youth pastor or uh, a leader of some flavor and ask them to give me the names of, um, you know, a handful, a dozen, maybe youth, and then I'll go out online and I'll man in the middle attack all of them. And and what that means is, is I go in and I actually spoof, and it's very easy to do because most all kids, even adults, have Facebook pages and some other things where you can garner a lot of information about that person. And then when you start talking to them individually <clears throat> online anonymously, you can talk as though you know them because you have all this background information from their Facebook page. You know who their friends wow. are. You know who they talk to. You know what they look like. You know the things they like to do. You know where they were last Friday night. If you get on their Twitter, you know exactly what they're doing right now. So it, it's very easy to garner a lot of information. And so then I can step in and I can act like one of their friends. And it's amazing what uh, a kid will tell you in a text message if they think you're their friend. And so, um, so we we execute that, and then during the seminar, uh, you typically don't have a lot of uh, attention paid by the by the kids, more so the parents, until in the middle of the seminar we call one of them, and their phone rings, and um, they're surprised that it's me on the stage talking with them, and so. Um, Oh, so wow, that, that's that's so, interesting. So so maybe yeah. we should uh, pick a pick a random caller here and uh, <laughs> and can hack them right quick. So so <laughs> no, so, so, so a, a vector is a is a point of attack, right? So in your personal life, those vectors are different than in your business life, but there but know that there are multiple ways in which you can be affected by uh, adversely by someone um, outside of your circle of trust, right? So. Um, so the so the well, and the notion so, uh, I guess when I think of vectors, I'm thinking of things like okay, you could be attacked through your phone, you could be attacked through your email, you could be attacked through text, yep. you could be attacked. Um, I mean, am I thinking of it the right way, or is it? Being- yep, no, that, that that that's exactly right. So so you have um, all these ports of points of entry into your digital life, right? So you have a cell oh, phone. Oh, and let's let's talk about some really common things that people can perhaps relate to. I know, for instance, when I've tried to sell something on Craigslist, uh, if I put my cell phone number in there, then I start getting texts from, you know, people, and clearly not English as a first language uh, speaking, right. who are, you know, trying saying things to me like, oh, give me your best price and you can ship it to me and, you know, and, yeah. uh, and we'll send, you know, send me the money and it has to be through PayPal. And, I mean, there's all these kind of red, flags um that uh that make me realize that you know this isn't a real person so i think like the craigslist norm is that you don't put in your cell phone number if you do you don't put it in as a series of numbers you 
spell out some of the numbers and you, you use some of the other sexual number characters. Um, right. So that's just one way it's touched me. Another way that it's touched me is, uh, you know, yesterday morning, I got a call from uh, American Express <clears throat> saying, oh, we need to verify something on your account. And I got two calls in a row. So, of course, it woke me up at 6 a.m. And uh, <clears throat> I called them thinking, oh, my gosh, somebody has, you know, gotten my credit card and they've actually started to use it on something. And, and it turns out that it was uh, – you know, they just wanted to verify some minor transaction, but they weren't even trying to do that. They were trying to sell me something. You know, it's like, oh, we just need them to do this. But then, oh, by the way, you're eligible for an upgrade. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, and I didn't call back the number they told me to call back because I'm always suspicious of that. So I called the, you right. know, the American Express number I know. Um, but I, But I think that's you know, that's a concern, too, is if you call back the number, someone <clears throat> tells you to call in an email, then you verify with that fraudulent person that they're, you know, who they say they are, and, and then you yeah. go ahead and make the transaction, and, and they're in where I think is where everything breaks down. Yeah. So so one of the greatest uh, things going on right now for home users is, and I'm sure at least somebody on this call has experienced this, and that is, uh, you get a call from a guy, clearly not from the United States, probably from India, who tells you that he's working for Microsoft, and they've they've noticed that there's some there uh, is uh, suspicious behavior going on in your machine, and that they've uh, noticed that it has a virus, and they can they can get rid of that virus for you for a small fee. But if you subscribe for two years or three years, and and this fee gets up into the five, six, seven hundred dollar range, and and they can clean your machine off. And all you have to do is give us your credit card number, and we'll bill you, and and we'll we'll take over your machine today and clean it up for you, right? Wow. And they actually call they actually call you, and and ironically, at the same time that they call you, uh, a box pops up on your desktop that says you've been infected by a virus. Oh dear. Okay. Oh dear. And, wow. And, and, well, I think my Yeah. So so the number one the number one thing to be aware of is. is any reputable company will never ask you for a complete credential to validate your ID, okay? So they may ask you for the last four numbers of your social, or they may ask you for, um, you know, the last two digits of your phone number or four digits or whatever the number is, or maybe you have a PIN set up with that company. But they'll never ask you for your whole Social Security number or your complete phone number with address or your complete credit card number. Um, They'll they'll always ask you for a portion of that information because frankly they don't need the whole number to validate you. The second thing to note is is that companies like Microsoft have a lot better things to do than watch your desktop computer. So anything that pops up on your desktop that that suggests that someone is watching it, they may be watching it, but not to help you. So um, so be aware of that. So I know two people who've had their emails hacked. And in both cases, the um, the hackers were able to gather sufficient information from their email accounts. They started reading their emails, and they were able to gather information from their email accounts to get bank account information, signatures, yeah. and uh, you know, in, in one case, they actually um, wired a really substantial amount of money uh, sure. to an out of the country bank. And, um, and so they, they, you know, found a form that this, 
you know, this investor had or this, this yeah. person had in their email and they used that form to, to send it to the bank directly with their signature on it saying, send the money here. So they, yeah. you know, as far as the bank's concerned, they've got something valid from that person with their signature on it and uh, clear direction. But, uh, you know, the breakdown, I think, in that case was that the bank didn't call them to verify that. And, and I don't know that the banks have a system in place that requires them to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about how that how that functionally happens. So. So, first of all, um, hacking takes a, a lot of different forms. Right. So hacking can imply that I've actually broken into something or it could imply that I just basically gathered information that was, you know, freewheeling around the thing we called the cloud. So uh, so let's let's talk about both of those things and how you could know if that has happened to you. So. Um, the first, the first red flag on your email account, any email account, is if you get a notification or you're trying to log in and you can't log in, and you have to reset your password to get into your account, and you know that you haven't typed in the wrong password or forgotten it, but you're absolutely sure that you are using the correct password for that account, then there's a high likelihood that someone has broken into your account and reset your password for their own purposes. Now, most most things like like Google and um, uh, other types of services like that, Amazon, uh, you know, services, uh, a lot of other companies like that have a, a, a method of a thing that we call two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication wherein if you reset your password, you're going to get a notification on another device that says uh, it either informs you that that has taken place or um, it will require you to put in a validation code that is sent to you via text message on a, a secondary device. So, so if, someone, if, if it's an account that requires multi-factor authentication for reset, then you would, you would get a, a notification on your phone or whatever your your multi-factor device is um, when when someone broke into your account and tried to change the password. Now, why would they want to break into your account and change the password if they just broke in? Well, the, the fact of the matter is how that occurs is it they don't typically, it's not a guy sitting there uh, trying passwords out. It, the, the way they do that is it's called a brute force attack and they, they try literally thousands of passwords against your account in a very short period of time, and they don't actually know what the password is that breaks into your account. So once they get in, they reset it. So that's that's why they do that. So so know that that's one red flag that comes up. Now there are instances where uh, you know backends do go haywire and require you to reset, and and it's normal, but typically that's not the case. If you see that, then what do you do? Do you, you know, do, you don't click well, the link that's in the email that told you to do that. You actually go back to your source, like if it's your bank or if it's your email account or whatever, and well, reset it. There, no, on, right? on a on a, on a, on a multi-factor authentication, the way it typically works is, is you will get a a a, a, ver a validation code sent to your secondary device, and then that has to be input on the screen that you're actually trying to reset the password on. So if someone else is trying to reset your password, they're obviously not going to get the validation code and be able to do that reset, right? So, so it, they're effectively blocked from doing that. Um, but if and you're by dealing the way, with when, a service that doesn't have that multi-factor 
uh, authentication, then you you should go back to the actual source of. of yeah. So so if you get a if you get an occasion where you try to log in and you can't, uh, and then the first thing you want to do immediately is not go oh crap I need to go find my password is the first thing you need to do is immediately say to yourself um, it's a high likelihood that I've been hacked and so go reset your password do a, do a password reset and the other common problem that people typically do. And I know this is going to sound horrible, but most everybody uses the same password for all their accounts. Try desperately not to do that. And don't set, separate them by, um, you know, one digit in, in, the, in the password or, or name one, password one, and the next one, password two. Don't do things like that because those are very easy. Those are the first things that hackers look at, and they're very good at finding it. The second thing never to do is in a password use personal information like birth dates, anniversary dates, dog names, uh, names of friends, uh, places you like to go, anything like that, do not use those as passwords, uh, even if you're creative in the spelling of them, because trust me, well, as Jeff, creative as Jeff, you think know, you can I, be. I know what I'm, I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so so no, no matter how, how snazzy you think your spelling is of a, of a, uh, a common thing, uh, trust me, hackers know every way to spell it with digits, with numbers, with special symbols, uh, with everything you can think of possibly, uh, and, and they, they've already been there and done that. So, um, so don't do that. So then the second thing I would uh, count, uh, you know, tell people to do with regard to passwords is have a, have a password wallet uh, of some flavor. So if you're using, and you should be using, multiple passwords on multiple accounts, um, go and invest, uh, and, and I, you know, you, some free ones are great, uh, some paid ones are great, some are not. So just kind of do your research and figure out what uh, what best suits your device and et cetera, and then use a password wallet where there is one hardened password, and a lot of people hate hardened passwords because they're so long, they're so difficult to remember, but it at the end of the day, it makes it the, so to give you an idea, what I'm talking about is, is where you would have a password that is a passphrase, might be 30 characters long, and you would use special characters and numbers as well as upper and lowercase uh, 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 letters in that phrase um, as a password. And when you go from a, a six-digit password to an eight-digit password, you've exponentially increment, increment, incremented the number of um, brute force attempts that it takes to hack into that account. And by doing that, you've elongated the amount of time that it takes that hacker to brute force your account. So one might think, well, great, so I've just made it a little bit more difficult. Well, actually, the whole game between in cybersecurity is, is we wanna make it as difficult as possible for someone to break into your accounts. No account is impervious to a break-in. I'll just tell you that straight up. It'll send cold chills down everybody's spine, but no account is unbreakable. What you want to do is make it so difficult to break into that it's that I'm going to move on to the next guy and break into his account because it's so much easier. So there is a there's a time return on a on a hacker just like it is in your everyday job where you want to be as efficient as possible at doing what you do. Hackers want to be as efficient as possible as well. The longer they spend trying to hack an account, the more opportunity law enforcement has to find them. And so the more difficult you can make it to hack into your stuff the less likely it is that they're going to hack into you because it just takes too long. 
And so, um, so that's the game we're playing. You're never going to be able to 100% secure everything that you have because everything is breakable. But, um, but some things are much more difficult to break into than others. So that's, that's the game we're playing, right? Well, and are these wallets safe? Uh, you know, I'm always worried. They, that the, they, they are safe because could be what, yeah, what happens is, is, is they, they, most of them use at least a, a triple DES encryption. Most of them are DOD level five encryption. And so um, to, to give you an idea of what it takes to break into a, a DOD level five encrypted password that is 10 digits long, um, it, it, it takes a, a Cray 4, which is the fastest computer known to man today, which um, runs at several, uh, well, let's call it multi-billion instructions per second. Uh, it would take that computer approximately three lifetimes to break into your account. So, wow. so that's not a very that's not a very efficient use of time for a hacker. Okay, right. e- even though the pay- even though the payload is huge, it's virtually uh, mm-hmm. y- you'd have a better chance of winning the lotto two days straight in a row and getting hit by lightning <laughs> twice in each of those days. So, not very likely to happen. Oh, that's funny. Um, right. Well, I mean, it's funny, but it's also tragic if you think about it. Um, yeah. Well, so so here's here's one of the issues that um, that our clients have run across is that you know we, we we draft these documents for them and then they have to convey these documents off to their investors and then there's an, and you know at some point there has to be some information conveyed on how yeah. to actually make the payment. And right. you know what? What can we do within that process to uh, safeguard our investors, safeguard our clients? Uh, you right. know, is, do we have to go to these investor rooms, or is that the is that the trend? Um, well, that's that's one way to do it, right? So there's there's some other things that you can do to um, to protect that information. And what I was going to say is, so one one way in your email account is it can be hacked, but the other way that is less and, and actually more likely to happen, and most of wire fraud is done this way, is what people need to understand is, is when you're sitting in the privacy of your home and your or your office and you type something in on your computer and you hit return and that information is sent out on the World Wide Web, as we affectionately call it, it is no longer safe. The minute you hit return, it is as though the referee threw the ball up at midcourt and it is jump ball, okay? So that data is floating around on the internet and anyone can intercept that packet and decipher it, okay? And that, now, having said that, all of your information is not neatly compacted into one packet, so it takes a bit of effort, but it is absolutely possible to sit a bot outside. Once I find out what your, what your IP address is, of your source machine, I can sit a bot out there and I can intercept all of your internet traffic and I can decipher it, okay? So that's typically how it happens. Uh, emails are, are then, it's, it's the equivalent of, um, it's the equivalent of, you've seen these um, spy shows on TV where they've got guys assembling trash to figure out clues. It's the same thing only digitally, right? So they. They reassemble your email packets, and then they can read your email. So how do we how do we fix that? Well, so one of the things is is there are several mechanisms within the email uh, delivery mechanism that can be 
set up. Most accounts are not typically set up like this by default. However, uh, it's becoming, we're getting more and more calls every day to go in and do this for clients. And, and there are several different um, mechanisms that are done at the DNS level, as well as the mail server level to help this problem. So one is, is, is a, a two things called DMARC and DKIM that are set up on your DNS. And those allow uh, some form of feedback loop, if you will, in the, um, in the mail stream, which says I've gotten all of the packets for your email and they're all uh, unscathed and, and whole, right? They haven't been tampered with. Um, and that, uh, that is a very, um, very secure way uh, to do that. Then the second way is to actually overtly put in a product that will encrypt your email um, from, from point of send to point of delivery. And that uses a, a typically a public and a private key pair and your, your email content is encrypted um, with something no less than, uh, say, a triple dev encryption. And so this that is like using a service other than Gmail to yes. handle your yes, email would, to use a service that yeah, and, 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 to, and to implement those, those things that I just uh, referenced, it would require someone that knows how or hosts your DNS and knows how to set that up as well as uh, requires a sense of a certain amount of monitoring ongoing uh, just to make sure that that is so that that's it's working. Now, what about um, having some kind of a, a like? I have this program called Private Internet Access. You know, I pay like seven bucks a month for it, or something like that. Um, I mean, and that's supposed to mask your IP address. Is, is that helpful? Is it not enough? Is yeah. So yeah. So I was about to say that the third way to do this is to use what we call a VPN. Anyone can pert now. <laughs> This is going to sound bad, but the way the reason VPNs came about is because uh, if you're not aware, you can you can get free TV, uh, you can get access to all the latest movies, um, series, uh, even sometimes before they show up in a movie theater uh, for free on the internet. But it is illegal. However, you can mask that illegal activity by using a thing called a VPN. And what it does is it's basically a server that someone has set up that you pay to use. Um, most good hackers will string a series of VPNs uh, together so that it becomes virtually impossible to backtrace on them. However, most hackers are not very smart, so they don't do that, but the really good ones do. Um, and so you can, you can utilize that same technology and you can um, subscribe to a VPN service. Uh, it usually runs about 10 bucks a month. And what that does is it sends your – so a VPN does two things. It not only obfuscates your source IP, but it also encrypts all the traffic between your machine and that VPN. So what happens is, is uh, the, machine, the information leaving your company or your home gets, uh, depending on where you set the VPN tunnel up at, is encrypted for the passage of that tunnel. So what happens is, and, and I'm, uh, most of these VPN servers are offshore, by the way, so um, so they're in, you know, uh, China, they're in Europe someplace, they're, uh, they're, they're someplace not on U.S. soil, um, and your information gets sent to those servers encrypted. So even the person running the VPN tunnel cannot decrypt your packages. Then once they leave the other end of the tunnel, they're then free in, in open, clear space, just as though they had left your office or your home, and they, they continue on their journey, right? But your, what the 
the um, company that's offering this VPN service does is on the receiving end of your VPN traffic, that IP is, is dynamically allocated on a certain interval. So it changes all the time. So even if I intercept traffic out the end of your VPN tunnel um, on a given IP address, in a minute or two, that IP address is going to change. So it's going to be very difficult for me to reassemble your information via a string of IP packets that come off the end of the VPN tunnel. So, so your information is encrypted for the journey through the tunnel. Then out the other end, your IP dynamically changes um, periodically, typically on a 30 or a 60 second refresh rate. And it becomes very difficult to, to figure out A, where you're coming from, B, who you are, and how to reassemble all of your packets into a nice tidy package. So this is gonna be, be like a paid paid monthly service, right? It is, it is a paid monthly service. Usually starts at about 10 bucks. If you run a lot of traffic, then it, it'll go up from there. But but um, you know what's privacy of your data worth? I guess. Okay, so so we've talked about email, and we're sending email, and we can protect it with a VPN. Um, yep. You could maybe use some kind of a, a masking uh, software encryption. But um, what about cloud storage? I'm pretty sure that I mean I know our law firm uses cloud storage, and yep. I, guessing a lot of our clients do. In fact, we encourage them to uh, you know, upload their documents to some cloud storage plates. You know, how do we know if the cloud storage that we're using is safe? Um, so most of them have are ranked and have um, security rank ratings placed on their on their storage levels. Um, okay. I'll tell you that most of the large providers that people would use typically like Google, Drive, um, Microsoft OneDrive, uh, Dropbox. Uh, there are a few others that, but those are the three major players in that space that uh, are commercially available to people that that are affordable. Um, uh -huh. Amazon, AWS is another service that offers cloud storage. Um, all of those um, storage facilities are as secure as one can be. Um, they're they're not infallible. I'll tell you that, but um, it requires such a level of sophistication to break into them that, um, and, and not knowing exactly what the payload is, it it typically is not a very high risk um, destination for your data. In other words, uh, me as a hacker, if I if I'm going out there, I, I'm going I'm much more likely to spend time trying to hack Wells Fargo's account, uh, you know, network, as opposed to, um, you know, the the, the crapshoot of, of breaking into Amazon um, services and maybe, maybe hitting the jackpot on somebody's data there. So, um, I, you know, I want to go where there's okay. a guarantee. Well, that, well that's, that's encouraging. That's probably the most yeah. encouraging thing we've heard. <laughs> it's a little scary. <laughs> well, let's talk about um, receiving funds. Okay, so if yep. a client has a set of syndication offering documents and they're going to accept funds from an investor, how's, uh -huh. what's the best way for them to convey that information to the, client, uh, to the investor and then for the investor to actually make the payment? Should they write a check? Should they do a wire transfer? You know, we all hear about wire transfer fraud. How do we know and how can we tell that investor to make sure they're sending stuff to the right place? Uh, what, what can we do? So the simplest way to protect that data is to not send it in one email, okay? 
So use okay. multiple emails, break up the information, and, um, and and then it becomes more difficult to assimilate that into a usable source of information, right? The second thing is, is as, as end users of email and, and recipients of email, we have to get more intelligent around the types of things that we can do on our desktop to ensure that the email that we've, we've received is actually from the person it came from. Everybody on this call gets email every day that they have no idea where it came from and who it is, and it's got some goofy little encrypted message on there with a link. And it's human nature to go click that link. I'm going to tell you, never click that link. Because when you do, even though it may not even look like it does anything, it might go to a blank Internet page. The minute you click that link, it executed a script within your Outlook, within your web client, and it installed a piece of malware on your system. Almost guaranteed. I can almost guarantee you that it did that. So your number one thing is, is to make sure that you have very good malware products installed on your computer. Not just anti-spam. Uh, but, but actual, an actual malware product that protects against particular threats that come into your, your PC. Then the next thing you want to do is, is if you look at the sending address, there's always a sending address on your email and yep. it will have, it will have a domain name associated with that. The way the internet works is domains are not 100% foolproof, but they're pretty close. And so, um, when I when I want to send you an email, I put in, you know, um, Joe at 123.com, and 123.com goes out and makes a request on the Internet, and then an actual IP address is returned for 123.com um, for, for that email server. And so it's virtually impossible to send an email to someone um, without – traversing that DNS trail. And so what typically happens is the really good um, wire fraud guys is they'll um, realize that you're doing a lot of business via wire transfer. And so they'll go out and set up a domain. Anyone can set up domains. You don't have to have a company to do it. Uh, and, and you can set up a domain for whatever you want. So I go out and I'll set up a domain that is one letter off from your domain and I'll make it difficult to see. I'll do things like, for instance, if your if your domain name maybe has multiple letters together, like like two G's or two T's or two L's, then I'll make the same domain with three L's or three T's or three G's. So it's difficult to see in really small print on your computer screen, and you may just glance at it and say, "Oh yeah, that's that's a valid domain," and then you'll respond to it. When in reality, it's not. It's not. It's not the same domain, right? Um, so that's the first tactic to do, and very first thing to look at in any email that you're transacting business with is to look at that uh, sending domain name. Um, the second thing is, is if you're absolutely, you know, if you're super paranoid on most email clients, Outlook being one of them, uh, or Firebird or any other client that you might be using, if you right-click on an email message, you'll see a pop-up window come up in that email message. And at the somewhere on there, it's going to say view message details or view message header or something to that effect. And it's going to pop up a window and it's going to, it's going to look like Greek to you. But if you look in that window at the very top of it, it's going to tell you exactly where that email came from. It's going to tell you the IP address. 
going to tell you the domain name. It's going to tell you the account that sent it to you. Now, headers can be spoofed. I'll tell you that right now, which means I can send it from an, from an address and a domain that um, is not the domain that's reported in that header. But the, first, but the, the, the IP trail will always match where it actually came from. So you can take that IP and you can go type it in to an ICANN website and it'll tell you where that IP resides. So if your investor is in the United States um, and you type in that IP address and it says it's from China, there's a good chance that you're being spoofed or that that email did not come from your guy here in the U.S. So, All right. Um, so what I've taken away here, uh, Jeff, is that we all should have some malware. Uh, yep. Most of our cloud storage, uh, you know, ma the main cloud storage companies are, are pretty well protected. So that's, that's a relief. Absolutely. Um, we should all consider having some kind of a VPN, and we should be cautious about our emails. And when we get things from people, we should be maybe inspecting at least that uh, email address to make sure that it's, it's coming from the person we think it's coming from and somebody hasn't uh, hijacked their email. Yeah, and, and I, would, I would start to practice breaking up your, your information um, between multiple emails and not packaging it all up into one. Okay. All right. Well, this is all really great information. And obviously, Jeff is uh, an expert. Uh, he's got a company, a consulting company that can help you. Um, we, you know, would probably all do well to have him do a review of what we're doing to make sure we're not putting ourselves and, and other people at risk. Um, so, Jeff, what is your contact information if somebody wanted to call you and, or email you and, uh, and engage you to help them? So uh, our e my, my email address is jeff at jeffware.com. You can spell jeffware pretty much however you like, uh, but the um, actual spelling is jeffware.com. Um, and then our, our phone number is 214-491-8427, uh, and, um, and we, we do assessments all the time for folks and let them know where the holes are and how to plug them. All right. Well, um, so I'm going to give our contact information, and then we are going to go to our live Q&A. Our contact information, uh, this is Kim Lisa Taylor from Syndication Attorneys, and our contact information uh, the, for the firm is 844-1844-SYNDICATE. Uh, um, so if you just spell S-Y-N-D-I-C and then the number 8, then you will get to uh, our main line. Um, you can also go on our website at syndicationattorneys.com. There is a lot of information there. Uh, there. If you go to the resources page, that's where you're going to want to spend your time. Uh, under the resources, there are articles, there are past teleseminars, uh, broadcasts, and um, other blogs and frequently asked questions that will answer a lot of the questions you have about syndication. Um, and uh, then if you need to email us, uh, you can email uh, either me, Kim at syndicationattorneys.com, or Charlene, uh, Charlene at syndicationattorneys.com, and uh, we will set up an appointment for you. But you can make appointments directly off from the website if you'd like to have a free 30-minute teleconference to talk about your proposed syndication. We would be happy to talk to you about that. So with that, um, we do have a question. Please state your name and tell us your question. Hi, yes, this is Frenchie Benjamin. Hi, Kim. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. Good, good. Hi, Frenchie. 
right. Uh, listen, this is a very good topic, um, which I think probably should have been done probably years ago, uh, being that what we're going through in this country right now. But my point is, is that, and I was always concerned with, especially when you're dealing with uh, investors and you, how you send out mails to solicit investment funds for a syndication project. That was always my concern, with, and especially with my background being in IT as well, because I'm in the process of getting AWS certified. But my concern was is that back and forth, the information, the traffic, how is that really protected? Um, and I think you answered a lot of that question, um, especially with AWS. Now, my question with you, Jeff, is that can you use AWS in conjunction with a VPN? Does that combination work better? Um, so, so tell me what part of AWS you're going to use. I'm, I'm uh, a senior level AWS engineer as well, so I can pretty much answer all your questions around AWS as well. Well, that's the well, that's the question I'm trying to ask. Which what would be the setup? Because I'm learning the system, so I don't know it that well yet. Well, so so you want to use it just for web storage? Or are you going to be using uh, virtualized servers on AWS or any kind of database? Uh, well, the, the well, eventually that that'll be the goal. That we do use a virtualized server. Right. So so. Um, but you know, you understand my point. I'm I'm just concerned about. The, the access, the information that's being transferred between you and your investor. And then, yep. you know what I mean? And then they send, yep. I know they have to send information as, as regards to the, uh, first of all, their personal information. Second, when they do, a, yep. uh, say, if they wire a transfer an amount to your bank account um, and you get a notification of that, um, you know, that even though it's, most of it is going to a bank, it won't come directly to me. Well, at least I'll yep. get a confirmation or something like that. But it's a matter of the information that's being traveled back and forth. How do you feel right. comfortable and and make the customer feel comfortable, not alone yourself, that you you know you, that that information is not being taken and and possibly used? Yep. So so there's all different levels of doing that, right? So the first question is is how can you secure your connection to AWS? Well, your connection can be secured. If you have a VPN tunnel to AWS, which is absolutely uh, possible to do, right? With, you, with uh, the AWS gateway, uh, you set up a um, you know a, a security group and an ACL, and you can secure that tunnel. So that's right. that's pretty easy to do. Now, um, with regard now, even to with you, the, even with, with the floating server on AWS, don't they use like I know you have a base, but don't they have? It depends on where you are or where the nearest. Server the quickest one, uh, the one. Well, that you, both, so, well, Frenchie, well, so I'm going to suggest that Frenchie, I'm going to suggest this is probably a conversation you'll need to have with Jeff offline because it sounds like you guys are, you know, speaking a technical language. And I'm sure. Yeah, it's pretty, it, it, it is. It is pretty technical, but but no. In, in short answer, know that yes, you can protect the connection to AWS. Um, it, it, once you get inside their network, it's totally protected. Um, the second thing you need to know is, is there's other ways to transfer investor information without using email. So there's, there, we'd be glad to talk to you about those different methods too. Yeah, but there, I mean, there are there are some other methods that can be used, uh, such as uh, SharePoint sites in in, uh, in Office 365 that can be secured, and your investor information can be trans uh, conveyed without any risk. 
Okay. I'm sorry, Kim. I don't. I didn't mean to get. No, no, that's okay. I just, I just want to make but, sure that we're reaching the entire audience here, and and they think these questions are important. But I think you'll, you'll sure. kind of yeah, because Kim, I'm coming from the where if you have a because if you're managing syndication, you have a specialized software, an investor management software, and that carries a lot of financial data. Where you, that's where you yep. do all your data mining and data management at. So that information that's being transferred into that into that platform or that software or that app. Well, and there are, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. There are companies that provide uh, secure rooms and data rooms. And I can tell you that after this call, we're going to be uh, making a lot more, you know, more uh, <laughs> stringent recommendations to our, our clients about how they might handle that kind of information and that data uh, in the future. Just because, you know, we don't want our clients to be, at risk, we don't want them to ruin their reputations because you know somebody rerouted funds to right. uh, another country, yep. and you know that has happened. Uh, and I know of people that that's happened too, and it's more than once. You know, so um, you know, I, I think that this is this is a real threat. This is something that the uh, financial services industry and syndication industry has to take on and address, or. You know the whole idea of crowdfunding and online marketing is is going to take a hit. So yeah, because I, uh, I mean well, it, it makes me very nervous because once you get on LinkedIn and you you market yourself as a uh, a financial advisor or anything like that, then you become a target. I remember I got an email from someone who was telling me they were the the wife of Gaddafi, and I'm like, why are you sending me an email? You know. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Well, well, I'm going to be arrested any day by the IRS for fraudulent tax, tax returns. I, I get calls on that all the time. Well, but that's how you become a target. Now that now they're targeting yeah. you. you know? somehow, somehow they 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 found me out. So there we go. Well, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's crazy stuff, and you know, sometimes you just have to look at it a little bit skeptically, and uh, but sometimes it's, it's very difficult to tell. I mean, I can tell you, every time I log on to my bank account, I look hard at that domain to make sure I didn't mistype something, and I'm on somebody else's site that looks exactly like the one that uh, I'm used to going to. So it's yeah, and, and really Jeff is right. I get. Get at least one of those a month with somebody sending me an email saying that I need to my bank account something that or my email is going to be uh, uh, what you call expire or something. And I look at it and I say, well, wait a minute, that's not from you know whatever my bank my email is, and it doesn't. I say well, it doesn't even have the same ending on it. And I'm like, okay, well, let me block this. You know, here's something that we didn't discuss, and here's something that we have is uh, we have cybersecurity insurance. Um, it costs our firm around a thousand dollars a year to have it, and it's an, up to a million dollars worth of coverage. So, yeah, if you're going to yeah. be a syndicator, you might want to consider getting one of those policies. Um, yeah, I already have you know, it. I have that already. Yes. Yeah. So, what do you think about that, Jeff? Do you know, does that work? Is it, you know, is that helpful? No, absolutely. That's a that's a very good thing to have. Yeah. So, I mean, I can certainly refer you to the firm that we got it from. I'm sure there's plenty of other places out there that have it. But, uh, you know, you just want to make sure that you're protected in some way, shape, or form uh, so that if it does happen to you that you can call on that insurance and it will cover, you know, cover anything. You know, and the, the people that I know 
one of them had a, a three hundred thousand uh, dollar you know transaction that got wired out of the country. Another one had you know seventy thousand dollars worth of losses. These are real numbers. You know, we're not talking about hundreds of dollars. You know, just pilfered from your bank account and you're fighting with your bank account to get it back. And you may or may not be able to get some of that money back. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think our banking system has an obligation here that they have yet to address and, uh, you know, and, and how to safeguard that and how to make sure that those things don't occur and to take some responsibility for them when they do. So, nope. all right. Well, mm-hmm. I uh, think that's, that's it for today. Um, again, uh, Jeff, why don't you give us your phone and uh, email address again? Yeah, phone number is 214-491-8427. It's best to precede that with a um, an email uh, at jeff at jeffware.com. And we don't have a big web presence because we don't like to have a target put on our back. So, um, in fact, our website's being revamped right now, but um, it, it, it will have contact information on it, but that's about it, um, just because we try to limit our liability as well. And uh, if you want to know more about our firm or you want to look at our articles and blogs and things like that, then uh, please go to syndicationattorneys.com and check out the resources page. And, uh, you know, please feel free to make a call or to schedule an appointment if you want to speak to us directly. Um, as always, we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to listen to us. And we look forward to having each and every one of you as a client in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Raise Private Money Legally podcast with your host, securities attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Syndication Attorneys PLLC is a law firm that provides syndication and fund documents, offers commercial real estate transactional services, and creates professionally designed investor marketing materials for capital raising clients nationwide. Visit syndicationattorneys.com to schedule an appointment and sign up to get a copy of our latest book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, the only guide you need to raise private money legally for real estate funds and syndications.